The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Our text this evening is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Uh, That's found on page 976 in the Pew Bible. We'll focus on verses 8 through 10. I'm going to go ahead and read the first uh, 10 verses just because it's such a wonderful section and gives us the context. Let's listen again carefully to all of these words and then focus particularly in verses 8 through 10. This is the Word of God. Let's worship the Lord by giving careful attention to its public reading. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's look to the Lord in prayer together. Oh, Lord, how we bless you for such wonderful grace lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord God, that by your grace, you would bless us in in the hearing of that word once again. Father, we pray that we would indeed in faith embrace our Savior afresh this evening. (coughs) Grant, O Lord, that we might receive only his truth. Enable us, Lord, to hold fast to that truth and to live by it. In this way, Father, even now, will you come to us and help us to walk in those good works which you prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I still remember in my own life, the first time I feel like I first time I remember kind of grasping the truth before us in this text this evening, the truth about God's grace, salvation by grace, particularly as we see it in verses 8 through 10. I was just a young boy in the uh, neighborhood in which my family lived in San Diego. I had a, a good friend my same age, just lived two doors up from us. We were best buddies, did everything together, rode bikes, played hide and seek, did all the things young boys do. And on Sunday, our families both went to church, albeit not to the same church. And I remember being a bit disappointed to have to learn from my father that the, 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 the church they went to, the faith of this family was not of the truth the way ours were. And I remember asking, well, well, why not? 
What's wrong with their church? Uh, they were Mormons. And our, our friendship with this family led to my dad doing some serious study, kind of a deep dive into the Mormon faith. And it actually even involved him in a ministry seeking to bring the gospel to the Mormons. But I remember asking, so what's wrong with their church? And he certainly didn't expect that as a young boy, I'd be able to grasp all of the details of the Mormon faith, but I'm so thankful for the way he, he focused in on one thing and he did so by well, uh, by giving me this, this example, this illustration. He said, just imagine, imagine if a father offered to his son a gift and it was a gift of such infinite worth, worth, uh, value greater than all of the, tr- the riches you could ever imagine to have. And he said, son, I'm giving this to you as a gift, receive it. And the son said, oh, I can't receive it as a gift, dad. Let me go out, you know, work in the yard. I'll, I'll work to earn it. And he says, you'll never be able to do that. It's worth more than, than all the money you could get from a million lifetimes of work. It's too valuable. Just receive the gift. And my dad said, Dave, you know, the, the Mormons, they are out seeking to earn that gift. Now, that, that, that's not a statement, of course. It's not a judgment on the heart of any individual. Only God knows the heart, and only God will judge. But that is a statement about Mormon doctrine. Just look at their Articles of Faith, chapter 1 and verse 3, if you want to check that out yourself. But boy, that really helped me understand for the first time the truth about our salvation as a gift of God's grace grace. Think on it again this evening, brothers and sisters. We've seen much about it in this letter. Uh, we, we've, we, we were left off in chapter or in verse 7 last time, uh, being taught that we will continue to learn of grace for all eternity. will be shown the riches of God's grace in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. And this evening, we focus on some very important things about our salvation by grace. We learn about how we receive it, and we learn about who brings it about, and we even learn about the good works that accompany or flow out of that salvation. Of course, as the overriding theme of all of this, we receive that because salvation is all of grace, God gets all of the glory for it. There's no boasting on our part. All the glory goes to God. Our message this evening is this, that God's gracious gift of salvation results in his glory alone. And as we look at the the text before us this evening, we really have, I want to suggest, three points which understand, help us understand why that is. Why is it that God gets all the glory and we don't boast? We're going to see that it's because, precisely because, this salvation by grace is received through faith alone. That's first. Secondly, we're going to see that it is all God's doing, and then lastly, we'll see that even our good works are God's doing. So those are the important truths which are before us this evening, such important truths. May the Lord help us to see them afresh. Our first point then about our salvation, it is received by faith alone. We see that right there in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith alone. And, and, now, and now as you think about those words, uh, 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 you have been 
saved. I want us to to understand that, that when Paul speaks those words, you have been saved, he's really speaking about a salvation fully enjoyed by these uh, believers, uh, something that's that, that's already been received. And so in, in that sense, he's thinking of salvation as a past and completed event. We know, of course, that there's all, all, also an ongoing as well as a future aspect to our salvation. We can speak of the fact that we, we are being saved even now. That's our sanctification. We will be, sa- we will be saved ultimately in, in glory. Our salvation will be uh, complete in that way. But here Paul's focusing, I think, on, on salvation, which the Ephesian believers had already experienced. They'd already been born of the Spirit, those who'd believed. They were sealed by the Spirit, we saw in chapter 1, verse 13. They had been definitively saved from the power of sin. There's regeneration. The same Spirit who sealed them is the one who had enabled them to believe. They, When they heard the gospel, uh, the word of their salvation, they had believed in Christ. And through their faith, they had been justified. That is, they had been forgiven and counted righteous in Christ Jesus, counted righteous, justified in union with Jesus Christ. And I think it really is a justification, which is particularly in view here in verse 8, because of the fact that Paul speaks of it as being a, a salvation by grace through faith, justification, is, is something that is a complete, uh, a past and completed act for the believer. We have been justified, and we've been justified by faith alone. Of course, that's our Reformation battle cry, isn't it? Sola fide, faith alone, so important. This is the mountain on which Martin Luther was willing to die, along with all of the other great solas of the Reformation. We can consider this something of a, of a plug for the upcoming Reformation party we can make uh, this evening, where we will remember, we will glory in those great solas of the Reformation. The scriptures alone teach us that, that Christ alone has saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, and to the glory of God alone. We don't boast because God gets all of the glory, but because it's a salvation by grace alone, it's a salvation which must be received by faith alone. It must be faith alone if indeed it is a gospel of grace. Isn't that true? Could God have, have come up with some different kind of salvation that, that, so, such that those, those truths of the Reformation might be slightly modified so that instead of, instead of sola fide, we'd be rejoicing in the truth of solus amor, that is, love alone. And this evening for our affirmation of faith about justification, we, we said that, that faith Thus, receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Faith is the alone instrument of our justification. Was that, was that just sort of an arbitrary choice on the part of God? Could God just as easily have made it love that is the instrument through which uh, sinners would be justified before him, such that our text tonight would have said, it is by grace that you have been saved through love. I think the answer is no. 
Salvation could not possibly have been that way. If the gospel is not a gospel of salvation that is received through faith alone, then it's not a gospel of grace. The Bible's clear on that. A very important verse that speaks to this, somewhat overlooked verse, I think, is Romans chapter 4, verse 16, which in the old King James translation said simply, it is of faith that it might be by grace. Or as the ESV says, it it depends on faith in order that the promise might rest on grace. Just think on that this evening. Why is that? Why is, why faith? Why not love or why not hope or joy or some other Christian virtue? I think the answer is, I think we heard it just just last week. Pastor Hulse said this and it, it bears repeating. It's because of that extrospective component of faith. Faith is extrospective. That means it looking to something external to oneself. In faith, we look away, we look outside of ourselves, and we look unto Christ. The point, of course, is not that, you know, when we believe, we do this great thing. That's not the point. The point is faith looks away from anything we do, and we look to Christ. When we, when we last at last gather before the throne of God on the last day and we, we ascribe all honor and glory and worship and praise to Christ, we won't in any way be thinking, boy, how is it that I got here? Well, it's because of the great thing I did. I did it. I believed. Now we'll be looking to Christ and we'll be saying, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the one whose blood was shed to wash away all of my sins. Worthy is the one who has clothed me in his righteousness. You know, and as we do that, as we look away from ourselves to what Christ has done, that's what faith is. Faith looks away from self and unto Jesus. To, to look to Christ in faith is to acknowledge that Jesus has done something which indeed, as my da- dad taught me, is of infinite inf- worth greater than anything in this world, and it's nothing that I possibly ever could have earned by anything that I did. Certainly not like a, a worker who goes out and works and earns his wages. In fact, Paul uses that very example in Romans chapter 4. He writes in, in Romans 4, verse 4, that to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You might think about this, maybe you, you young men, younger men, if, uh, you know, if your, your neighbor were to offer you some work to do, he would say, I'd like you to come work in my yard, maybe, maybe uh, rake up and, and haul away all of the leaves. I was, uh, I, I Googled what the, the average uh, wage for a yard worker is, and I, I learned that it's $17 an hour. So let's just imagine that your neighbor has said, okay, I want you to come work in my yard. I think it should take you maybe a maximum of eight hours, eight times 17, finish the job completely, and I'll pay you $136. And so you agree to do the work, and you go out there and you work, and indeed it takes you just about every bit of those eight hours, and you finish the job, and after sweating and working hard in the son, you go to your neighbor and he says, you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to, because I'm such a nice guy, I'm going to give you a gift. And he hands you the envelope and you open it up and you count the money and it's $136. What would you be thinking? Well, I'm glad you gave me the money, but it sure was not a gift. This is money you owed me. You would be stealing from me if you were not to give me this money. 
Paul's point is that is not the way we receive salvation when we come to God in faith. We don't, we don't come to God bringing our works and thereby claiming what is our rightful due. In fact, that's the character of faith. Faith brings absolutely nothing. Faith only receives. Theologians sometimes speak of the empty hand of faith. Faith is nothing but an empty hand which receives. We might think of ourselves in believing. We come to God like a, a helpless beggar. When we lived in Africa, it was very common in the big town or the big city in Bali or Kampala to see a beggar on the street. It was very sad. Often they were disabled, maybe maybe blind or maybe from having contracted polio early in life. It left uh, left them uh, disabled, maybe crippled, but they'd just be sitting there and, and have nothing but maybe a cup or an empty container in hopes of receiving some kind of of gift. That's a perfect picture of what we all are by nature as those who stand in need of this salvation. In fact, Martin Luther is said to have scribbled on a piece of paper on his deathbed the words, we are all beggars. Evangelism has been described at times as, as one beggar telling another beggar where to go and get the bread. Children, you can think of, think of yourself this evening, a very, very helpful illustration and to help us understand what it's like to come to God in faith. Imagine yourself like, like a beggar just sitting there with your hand out, uh, hoping to receive that free gift of some bread. In fact, theologians also sometimes speak of, of, uh, of faith as the, the empty hand of faith. Thomas Boston described faith that way, that the one who, who comes to Christ for justification is like coming, is like one coming to a king with nothing but an open hand, nothing but an open hand to receive a gift from the king. Charles Spurgeon put it well when he wrote these words, faith is chosen by God to be the receiver of salvation because it does not pretend to create salvation nor to help in it, but it is content humbly to receive it. Faith is the tongue that begs pardon, the hand which receives it, and the eye which sees it, but it is not the price which buys it. Faith never makes herself her own plea. She rests all her argument upon the blood of Jesus. She becomes a good servant to bring the riches of the Lord Jesus to the soul because she acknowledges whence she drew them and owns that grace alone entrusted her with them. We say amen to that. Faith is nothing but receiving, resting on Christ alone. And that's why Christ, that's why God gets all of the glory. And I think that becomes even more clear as we understand what we see in our second point then this evening, and that is that, that, that it is all God's doing, not your own doing, writes Paul in, in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Well, what is Paul referring to there by the, that word, this, this is not your own doing? Uh, so some take that to be a, a reference specifically to faith. So faith, the act of believing is not our doing, it's God's 
doing. And of course, that's, that's absolutely true that God grants us the ability to believe. That was true, uh, when the gospel was preached by Paul, uh, in Philippi, when, when Lydia paid attention to what Paul said and she believed, she did so because the Lord opened up her heart and enabled her to believe. Faith is indeed a gift from God. In fact, when when Paul wrote his letter to that same church in Philippi, he wrote to them that it had been granted to them to believe, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. And so the, the this is not your own doing certainly does include the faith, the act of believing. But I believe it's even more than that. I think that those who, in, who interpret this to mean not just specific, specifically believing, but the entire saving event, soup to nuts, every bit of it. Hear that this evening, dear Christian. No part of your salvation was your doing, not your going and putting yourself in a place where you heard the gospel, certainly not your uh, making yourself disposed to the gospel, certainly not even your believing the gospel. Indeed, you would have done none of that were it not for God working graciously to bring you to salvation. God would have been completely righteous and just to leave you in your hell-bent rebellion against him and allowed you to, to perish in your sins. But oh, what marvelous grace, what marvelous grace. I think, I think probably, uh, perhaps we've all heard grace in one time or another described or defined as unmerited favor. It's, it's favor that you receive though you don't earn it. That de- definition really is inadequate, isn't it? That sort of presumes that we might be in a neutral state, like we've done nothing at all, either positive or negative, nothing good or evil. We've certainly learned that that's not the case with what we are by nature as sinners. So so, so grace in the gospel is favor which God bestows upon us despite all of our demerit. We read in the text again, we heard last time that we, we are, we are not those who by nature, uh, th- those who are neutral. We're those who are, who have lived out our days in malice and ra- uh, uh, under the wrath of God. We've lived as children of wrath. We deserve hell. And God gives us just the opposite. He gives us all of the riches of heaven and every part of it is his doing. It's certainly, certainly not, not, not by virtue of any work we've ever done or any virtue or any work that we ever will do. You know, in some ways, I suppose there are limitations to the illustration of the, uh, the beggar because sometimes a beggar's level of success might depend on, on how, uh, how hardworking he is or how clever he is. I think that's per, uh, particularly true with the kind of begging we see sometimes going on here in the city of of Raleigh. I suppose it does take work to get out there. You know, no, no right where to be, what time, and how to go about your work. And by the way, I'm not making any kind of moral judgment, positively or negatively, on those who are out doing that, or upon any of you of whether or not to. Uh, to at times give a, give a gift to a, to a beggar. My point is that I bet there are plenty of beggars out there who end up doing boasting about their work, right? I know, I know how to work the streets. I know how to make some good money in just a few hours of work. But that is not, that is not how it shall be when it comes to God's grace given to helpless beggars, you and me. Dear Christian, we have no ground, no place for doing any boasting 
whatsoever. It's all of God. That's what we've learned. It was predestined even before time began. We were chosen by Christ and it was accomplished all by the work of Christ in time and even its application to us, all of the events surrounding our conversion. Yes, including the moment we believed in the faith to believe this is all, all of it is of the Lord. God is the one who worked in our lives. God is the one who prepared us for the day. God is the one who brought us to the place where we were we were ready to hear the gospel, and God is the one who enabled us to believe the gospel when we heard it. Salvation is not kind of God doing his part, and we come and we do our part, so we're working together. No, it's all his doing, soup to nuts, every part of it from beginning to end. As verse 9 says, not a result of works so that no man may boast. Nothing to boast about before God, not even our ongoing sanctification. And that brings us to our last point this evening. Even our good works, even our good works are his doing. It struck me as I was thinking about these words again this past week that I think perhaps we err slightly, and I want to be careful in saying this, but I think we err slightly in in seeing this sort of primarily as functioning as kind of a, a classic text to teach us about our duty to do good works, or even as a classic text to teach us about how good works always accompany a justifying faith. Of course, and I do think the Bible absolutely teaches those things are true. We are duty-bound to walk in good works. We're going to see that in this very epistle. Think about how Paul teaches that so clear, clearly. Think of his words to Titus where he writes, I want you to insist on these things that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Titus chapter 3, verse Eight. And it's, of course, absolutely true that true justifying faith is always, always produces and is accompanied by good works. We confess that in our affirmation of faith this evening. James teaches us so clearly that faith apart from works is not true faith. It's dead faith. James chapter two, verse 26. And I think those truths are absolutely supported by our text this evening, certainly by, by way of implication. But if you look at this ver- these verses very carefully, you note something. Paul's po- Paul here is not explicitly commanding the Ephesian believers to do good works. And he's not so much giving a, you know, uh, teaching about how they always accompany true faith. At this point, he's presuming those things are true. Of course they're true. Of course, true believers are commanded to to walk in good works. Of course, true faith will always uh, be accompanied by good works. The point that Paul is making here is that our salvation is in no way dependent or the the result of those good works. That is to say, those, those good works do nothing. They don't contribute one iota to our justification, to our, our, our standing in a, in a favor, uh, in God's good favor. It's for that reason, Paul's point here is those don't provide any ground for boasting. I think if we if we think about the application that this brings to us this evening, probably the most important application, the most important good work that you are called to do this evening, dear Christian, is to turn aside, to, to put off any boasting 
and to trust wholly in Jesus Christ. Turn to him and and receive from him that grace that he gives. And you can only do so as once again you embrace the truth that your salvation is by grace through faith alone. And Paul gives us even further reason to do so to our point here. Why is there no place for for boasting? You want another reason why you should not boast in anything you have done or anything you possibly ever will do? Not only uh, not, not, not only shall, should you not boast in any part of that process of your conversion or in your believing, but nor should you boast in any good work that you ever performed throughout all of your Christian life. See what it says in verse 10. We are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. The emphasis there on the work is on the word his, God's, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our good works, ultimately, they're not our doing, are they? They're God's doing. Just think on that this evening. Maybe it helps by by way of illustration to think back to, to God's original work of creation. The children have been thinking about that, I think, in, in a singing the, the hymn they've been singing this month, this month. All things bright and beautiful. The Lord God made them all. It's not our work. Our catechism teaches us rightly. Well, well what is the work of creation? The work of, of, of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. God did such a good work, didn't he? God could look upon his finished creation and he could say it's all, all good. And here's a question about that. You know, as we think about that, children, as we think about all things bright and beautiful, all things wise and wonderful, God's good creation, did any of God's creatures have any ground for saying, boy, look at the nice work I did? Imagine Adam, newly created, the dawn of creation, looking at a mirror. I don't know if they had mirrors yet then, uh, looking at his reflection in the, the pond or the lake and saying, wow, if I do say so myself, what nice work I did. Be preposterous. We laugh at the idea. You know, the proverb says, let another man praise you and not you yourself. In fairness to Adam, there was no one around to, to, to praise him until, until Eve came along. But no, it was ridiculous. It, all the glory, even in that original creation, all of the glory for God's good work went to him and him alone. It's kind of amazing to stop and think about it. There was no ground for boasting, even in the original good creation. How much more now that we sinners have spoiled God's good creation by our sin in Adam. We're the ones who have brought sin into this sin-cursed world, and to think that we go around boasting about the, the good things we do. Let's be honest. We are, we are by nature, because of that sin that remains in us, even our, in our redeemed straight state, we are a boastful people. We, we have this, this longing, this striving to, to make ourselves look good, right? Look at me. Look at me. I'm the good one. I'm the successful one. I'm whatever. I'm, I'm the one in the church with the theological knowledge, or I'm the one who has it all together in my spiritual life or in my, my personal life or in my marriage or in my, my family life. It's all good with me. I suppose the truth is that the only thing we're really, really good at is faking it, right? 
pretending that we have it all together, pretending that we are something when we know we are nothing. And brothers and sisters, the the gospel frees us from that. It frees us from lives of, of fraud. It teaches us to put off all such deceit, to put off all boasting and to trust in and to glory in Christ alone. Just think on that. The one who was not exalting himself at all, the one who came not to boast, but to lower himself, he was doing the only truly great thing when he took upon himself all of the shame and the disgrace, all of the guilt of your sin and my sin, when he lowered himself and he went to the cross. What is the solution this evening to our sinful pride, our boasting, but Christ looking to him, looking to the gospel, brothers and sisters, that's the great application for us this evening, isn't it? We have a a duty, we have a need to saturate our hearts and our minds in the truths of the gospel. Fathers, do for your sons what my dad did for me so many years ago. Not just my dad, but my mom, fathers, uh, mothers, Teach your, your, your sons and your daughters primarily of the gospel. Sinclair Ferguson calls this, talks about our need to be immersed in the ocean of God's grace. God's grace is like an ocean. Teach your children to swim in the ocean of God's grace. That's what we need. We, we, we say we believe in, in a gospel of grace, salvation by grace through faith alone. And it's so easy for us to allow the gospel at times to fade into the background when we turn into practical moralists, right? Certainly in the way that we uh, interact in our homes. And how could we not? We're trying to get our children to do what we want them to do, right? But what's the most important thing we want them to do? We want them to learn to walk in those good, good works which God ordained beforehand that, that they should walk in them. And then the only way they're going to do that is by the grace of Christ. We must shepherd their hearts, our own hearts, to, to Christ, to trust in him alone. We need to train ourselves to think gospel thinking, to understand there's no, no good we could ever do, but that which comes from Christ, that which flows out of that gospel truth. And so we need to learn to trust wholly and always and only in him. We need to live our lives believing what we sing. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And by God's grace, when we learn to do that, then will flow forth those good works that God has ordained that we should walk in them. Think on that this evening. Think on that, children, as you, as you sing that song. All things bright and beautiful. God has ordained bright and beautiful good works that he desires we walk in them. We will walk in those works as, as, as we put our faith wholly in Christ, as we trust wholly in him, and then by his grace, yes, in obedience, we walk in those good works. And then we are, praise God, we are that new creation which God has made us to be, which has already begun in the death and resurrection of Christ, in which we are in union with him, and in which we will be as we walk in those good works for all eternity. Trust in Christ, and so walk in those good works, brothers and sisters. May God give us grace to do so. And, 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 and may our boasting then be never in ourselves, 
but only and always in him. Let's pray. That's our desire, Lord God. Forgive us for our boasting. Forgive us, Lord God, for where even as your people, we have not made Christ uh, the center of our trust. We've looked to other things. Uh, please have mercy upon us and direct our hearts again, Lord God, to trust, trust wholly, wholly in our Savior, O Lord Jesus. To that end, we pray that you would fill us with your word this evening, the true gospel as we've heard it proclaimed, and as now we will see it proclaimed visibly in the sacrament. Bless us, fill us with your spirit, fill us with our Savior, and so enable us to walk in, in ways that please you, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.